Let's go to God's Word this morning. We're excited about it. It's in Romans chapter number 16. We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter number 16. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, reveal transformational truth to us because the Holy Spirit is here to help us, to touch our hearts, to reveal truth to us. And we would see in the truth the magnificent story of your love for the human race. And in seeing your son Jesus, to learn to love like him, to live like him, and to lead like him, In his powerful and wonderful name, the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. The very beginning of his Gospel, he describes Jesus. The Word of God made in human form. The Scripture also teaches us that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. It's an interesting story. The emblem or his lineage is from the tribe of Judah. There's a duality to Jesus' nature. God and man in one. The emblem of the tribe of Judah is a lion. Now watch this. The last book of Scripture says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. In other words, he comes out of the lineage of David, has prevailed. So Jesus, why did he come to earth? He came to deal with the incurable issues of our sin, sickness, and addictions. You see, humanity cannot overcome sin, sickness, and addiction without the power of the name of Jesus. One pass of the paw of the Lion of Judah will cause every issue to evaporate. He neutralizes the power of Satan who would incarcerate us, hold us, and damn us forever. And in a very unusual message this morning, The Holy Spirit prompted me to put together to speak to you today. Someone's life will be transformed because of this. Remember the dual nature of the Messiah. Dual. Rabbis in Israel interpret this idea that Messiah might be two different men. That's how they've interpreted the character or the duality of the nature of Jesus. Because they look at him and they see two perspectives in him. He is called Mashiach ben David. He's also called Mashiach ben Joseph. In the Hebrew, Messiah, son of David, or Messiah, son of Joseph. In the Messiah, son of David passages in the Old Testament, Jesus is always the king and he is always conquering. In Messiah, son of Joseph passages, he suffers. In the book of Jasher, it's recorded that Joseph cried from the time he was sold to the Ishmaelites until they got him into Egypt. 
and they would beat him, and they said, shut up. We bought you, and you're never going back home. And the book of Jasher tells us that Joseph suffered until one day at age 30, he came to become second in command to the Pharaoh of Egypt. In Jesus, you see the lamb and you see the lion. The book of Revelation describes that as two in one. Just as the lamb, Jesus, he was introduced by John the Baptist as the lamb of God. He dies on Passover, and for 2,000 years, we've known him as the lamb slain, the one given his life for our sins. As the lamb, he is the alpha, the very first letter in the Greek alphabet, alpha. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And here's what the scripture and what he's saying to us. Jesus, as the lamb who suffered, introduced to us his priestly ministry in that he becomes sacrifice for us. He's been our high priest for over 2,000 years. On the other side, he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, And his kingly ministry is introduced to us in Scripture. The lamb will defeat the bad that is in you. The lion will whip the bad that is in the world. And because when he returns, he appears the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob, and from them came what we now know as the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus came lineage-wise from the tribe of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. There was Reuben, the firstborn. His name means, behold, a son. His mother said, my husband will love me when he was born. Simeon, his name means hearing. And his mother said, God has heard me again. Levi, his name means joined. And his mother said, my husband will be joined with me. Judah, his name means praise or praised. And his mother said, I will praise the Lord. Issachar, his name means hire. And his mother said, I have given my maiden to my husband. Zebulun, his name means dwelling. His mother said, now my husband will dwell with me. Dan, his name means judge. His mother said, God has judged me and heard me. Naphtali, his name means wrestling, and his mother said, with great wrestling have I prayed. Gad, his name means a troop, and his mother said, a troop comes. Asher, his name means happy. His mother said, the women will call me blessed. Joseph, his name means increased or fruitful, and his mother said, God has taken away my reproach. And the last son, Benjamin. His name means the son of my right hand. Wow. The first son was the Alpha. The last son was the Omega. Reuben, the firstborn, the declaration about Reuben was, Behold, a son. Benjamin, the last son to be born, called the son of my right hand. Okay, here's what the scripture says. Jesus is introduced as God's son. This is my beloved Son. Behold him. In him I am well pleased, God declared. When Jesus makes his appearance for ministry. 
Today he is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Son of my right hand. He is Reuben and Benjamin, Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. Wow. So if you were to sum up the declarations of the 12 sons of Jacob, the son joined with us, whom God hears, praise and reward, he judges and wrestles, and a troop assists me, happy and fruitful is the son of his right hand. In the meaning of the names, Messiah is revealed, and you can see Messiah in the lineage of his history, the chief tribe, the tribe of Judah. Judah has in its Hebrew spelling different Hebrew letters, and they have multiple meaning. Ud, A, Vav, A, Huda is translated 7,000 times in the Old Testament as Yahweh. God took the name Judah, Huda, and placed his sacred name in Judah. We say it Jehovah. So God took the tribe that Messiah would come from and concealed his holy name in the name of that tribe. Now remember, these brothers all wanted to kill Joseph. They threw him in a pit because he seemed to be favored by his father. And Judah was the one who intervened and said, you can't do this. Innocent blood will be shed. And when those brothers finally traveled to Egypt in the famine to get some food, to purchase food, they didn't recognize the brother Joseph they had sold. But it was Judah who declared, I will take responsibility. And if, if the Egyptians kill anyone because they claim we stole something from them, let them kill me. God saw the loyalty of Judah in that family lineage, and he said, out of that tribe will come my Messiah, because of the willingness to sacrifice. In Genesis 49, Jacob is near death in Egypt. And once again, he speaks to his sons. He brings them all before him, all 12, and he recants the failures of each of his sons. But when he comes to Judah, listen up, he sets up Judah for its future place in the great plan that God has for the redemption of fallen humanity. In Genesis 49, 9 through 10, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, three times he's mentioned in this passage as a lion. That's why the emblem of the tribe of Judah is a lion. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter is an elaborate staff that a king carries. Esther, of course, was very fearful in her time to go before the king because if he did not point his scepter in her direction, granting her permission to come in before him, she'd lose her life. The scepter from Judah would have had a lion's emblem on it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh was a name for the Messiah. So Jacob was prophetic concerning Judah, his own son. 
and is speaking not only in the moment, but speaking historically in the plan of God. Until Shiloh comes, that is God's son. And the Romans took over Judea, Judah's territory, in 6 B.C. Christ was born around, in our calendar, about 1 B.C. Now watch, the scepter of personal control over Judah departed just before the Messiah appeared in the history of the human race. Messiah has no weapons to defeat his enemies. He's come as the Prince of Peace. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet, he establishes a kingdom without lifting a sword or firing a shot. And Balaam, in the Old Testament, gets a prophetic insight. And listen to what he says in Numbers 24. I see him, speaking of the Lord, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Jesus declared this about our day. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. That's why the four blood moons aligned with the feasts of Israel that just finished are so God-ordained. There is a message that God is trying to send to the world. He said, I use these to declare my truth to you. That, that truth is Jesus is coming back. And there will not be four consecutive blood moons again for over 200 years. There was a clear understanding among Old Testament patriarchs of all the constellations that we've identified in the heavens. And they had biblical meanings. Astrology coming out of the Babylonian Empire as a satanic perversion of the constellations. Now Adam knew all the secrets of God's universe. He walked with God. They fellowshiped together. And whatever God informed him of was passed down to all of his lineage that's why at the time of Jesus' birth, this is what you read. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and they said, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then there's a connection between the four cornerstone tribes of Israel at the north, south, east, and west of the twelve tribes, there are four cornerstone tribes, and the four living creatures in the book of Revelation, and the specific constellations in the heavens that are named. They're all described there, and the significance of their symbolism. So the Magi come to King Herod in Israel. For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. Now the prophecy of a star rising in Israel is in the Torah, all the way back to Numbers 24. And as the Jews were in Babylon, they taught the Babylonians from their prophecies. For instance, Daniel read to them from the prophet Jeremiah. So when the star rose, the students of the heavens, who had been taught the prophecies by the captive Jews, they recognized a fulfillment coming to pass. So they travel all these miles to Jerusalem to see this king who's born. And they travel to see the king. Signs and seasons were all established by God. So ancients studied them and understood them. Now watch. This is exactly how it works. 
They see this sign in the heavens. They recognize it in the prophetic that they were taught by the Jews who were captive in Babylonia. And then, and they come into the city of Jerusalem and they get there to talk to Herod. And they begin to converse. And he sends those who search the Old Testament scriptures and say, yes, the scripture predicts there would be a sign in the heavens at the appearance of the Messiah. So now you go all the way back to Genesis 3. And God promises Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of the devil, and between your seed and her seed. And he, God, will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And the war is joined over humanity. And that's why Paul in the New Testament said he must reign, speaking of Jesus, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So a battle between the promised seed and Satan, the fallen archangel, for the control of the destiny of the human race has been joined. And Jesus has always been. He didn't just appear on earth as Messiah. He has always been. When all was created, Jesus was present. For we will make man in our image, God said. So the paw of the lion is destined by God to be on the head of the snake. And because of the fulfillment of the promises of God, now how does that affect us today? Jesus said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He says in Romans, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So Christians, we come to church, we come to do what? To celebrate God, to give thanks to him for his redemption. We call it worship. And we have our interpretation of worship. And if you really want to know how God thinks about worship, read the Psalms. Because there he describes how he is to be worshipped. He says, clap your hands, shout to the Lord, open your mouth and give me thanksgiving and praise. Sing to me a new song. He describes how he is to be worshipped. It's very clear how he wants worship. But we have sometimes our own cultural approaches to worship. Everybody has conceptions of what they think worship is. If we want to get it right, look at what God expects. So, yes, hands raised. He talks about lifting our hands to the Lord. Now, Methodists will put them about this high. And Baptists will get them about this high. And the Pentecostals will get them up here. Worship. How do we define worship? Well, we use our hands, yes. We open our mouths and we give thanks to God, yes. But don't forget your feet. Because every time you pick up your feet, you're dancing on the head of Satan. True spirit-anointed worship tramples on the head of Satan. When you fully engage Christ in your worship, plant bruises on the head of Satan. When you put your feet on the head of the devil, that's where his mouth is. When you put your feet on the head of the devil, that's where his eyes are. 
When you put your feet on the head of the devil, that's where his mind is. His mouth is what he speaks to you with. His eyes bring fear to you. His mind clouds your mind with lies and deceit and non-truths, preventing the truth of God's word from finding a place in your heart. It's time to worship the Lord with authority. God's authority. And if you don't feel like worshiping, worship anyways. When we worship, we trample the head of the dragon because Jesus is the head of the church and we are his body. He uses his body to crush the head of Satan. So church services are intended to be celebrations of victories over our adversary. We celebrate freedom from sin, freedom from the penalty of sin. But 365 days a year, the lion I serve never changes his position. As in the heavenly constellations, the lion doesn't change his position. He has his paw on the head of the serpent. Why? He keeps him under his authority. He keeps him within boundaries. He will not let him loose. Now, some of you are fearful the devil is going to attack you and kill you. If the devil could have killed you, he would have killed you a long time ago. He would have dragged you into the pit of hell before you were given a chance to be born again. But the devil doesn't possess the keys of death and hell any longer. Jesus holds those. Because the paw of the lion keeps the enemy under control. So here are the biblical principles you need to institute. First of all, the devil cannot plot a serious attack against you without the permission of God. He could not strike Job because God's hedge kept the devil out. And the devil said to God, have you not made a hedge around Job, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. I can't touch him because of you. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. He's a hedge around us, amen? Because the lion had him, the devil, under control. Should the Lord ever permit that you face something serious, just remember Job. Take heart in Job. He was trusting of his God. He never blamed God. And when the trial expired and Job remained faithful to the Lord, he received double for his trouble, amen? Twice the blessing came back to him for remaining faithful to God when the devil tested him. Number two, all satanic attacks are time sensitive. Are you listening? All satanic attacks are time sensitive. Paul reminds us, for I light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So one of the enemy's weaknesses, Satan's weaknesses, is this. He doesn't have the patience to fight long battles. Your strategy, patience, is a fruit of the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you the fruit, grow the fruit of patience. Satan has no fruit of the Spirit. So while your test might seem long to you, 
you can outlast the devil's patience. And the word moment is used three ways in the New Testament. In all three places, it uses different words to use to describe moment from the Greek. When the devil, Jesus is speaking, is, is, is depicted here. Then the devil, taking Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And that means in an instant. He flashed all the kingdoms of the world in front of him and said, bow down to me in an instant. In 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, that describes the lifting away of or rapture of the church. And the Greek word there is in an atomic second, 10 one hundredths of a second. It'll happen that fast. Your blink will, be, will not be as fast as this happens. For our light affliction, Paul goes on to say, which is but for a moment, there's that word again, but it's the other Greek word that means to flow, to pass, or let it slip by. Paul said, you might have me in prison today, and they did imprison him numerous times, but I'll be preaching again tomorrow. They stoned Paul to death at Lystra. Now remember, the disciples came out to where his body was, and prayed, and God raised him up. The next day, he went right back to preaching the gospel. And in that moment, in that time, and in that era, they would place you on the ground and hold you down and drop a heavy stone on your chest to crush your lungs, while everybody around you picked up rocks and threw them at your head. One rock would give you a concussion. You were literally buried under a pile of rocks, rocked to death. But in 2 Corinthians 12, during this time when he loses his life, he goes up to the third heaven and sees revelations of God he can't describe. Was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But I was in the presence of the Lord. When he comes back to life, he says, this is only a momentary affliction. Somebody please hand me an Advil. But when morning comes, I will get back up and go preach the gospel of Jesus because this affliction is only for a moment. Something happened to Satan when he was evicted from heaven. One of the three archangels. He rebels against the Lord. As a couple, three weeks ago, I preached to you about that. He's evicted from the presence of God. Now remember, heaven is eternal. And it doesn't go by time like we do. Heaven has no limitations. There's no clock on the wall or on your wrist. But when Satan fell to earth, he came into a dimension where the sun, moon, and stars control time. So meaning the devil steps out of eternity where he could have been forever, but rebelled. And as one of the punishments for his rebellion, he had a watch strapped on him, and he is limited to time constrained by time, and his time is short. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So right now, Satan is looking at the prophetic watch that God strapped on him when he was kicked out of heaven. And when he saw Israel become a nation again, when he saw Jerusalem recaptured, He sees Jews continuing to go back to Israel. He knows one thing. 
my time is running out. And as the gospel is being preached around the world, in fulfillment of what Jesus asked us to do, Satan wants to stop it, shut it down, kill Christians, persecute the church. It's a battle before the final victory. For when this gospel has been preached to every tribe and tongue, then the end will come, Jesus said. The devil is on a time limit. He's running around like a maniac, not knowing what God's trying to do all at once on earth. But God has the final say. And the enemy wants you to think this battle is going to go on forever. He wants you to believe that this illness you have is never going to improve. He wants you to think your marriage is never going to be right. He wants you to think this depression is never going to lift. He wants you to think your addictions will never be broken. He wants you to believe that you'll never receive the position that God promised you. He wants you to think God's purpose for your life will never get fulfilled. But once you realize it's nothing but a battle in the spirit world, some manifested demonic spirit targeted you. And listen to me. You will not quit before your victory. Because if you stop allowing the fruit of the Spirit called patience to grow in you while you're under attack, you'll cave. And the devil will say to you, this is something you're going to carry for the rest of your life. Your granddad was afflicted by it. Your dad was affected by it. Other family members in your lineage have been affected by it. And you're next. And if you get worn out before the devil does, he wins. There are some things you face. You need to leave under the blood of Jesus. And trust that God has taken care of whatever happened back there. One pastor was counseling this couple in trouble in their marriage. He made a statement about things you've done in your past you both need to fess up to. And he was speaking about their attitudes toward each other. And the spouse went past the moment and goes way back in their history, 25-some years back, before they were honoring God in the way they lived. And they were living a wild lifestyle, both of them. And she had an affair with somebody That was long gone. It was over, beyond them, had nothing to do with the moment. She was faithful to her now husband. They were both born again and serving the Lord. And this was pre-conversion experiences they lived out in their worldly living. Listen to me. You just need to leave some things under the blood. Just leave them there. You left them there at the cross of Jesus. Leave them there. Before you were born again, you were Freaky Freddy. It's under the blood. Leave it there. Amen? Leave it there. And the devil will attack you, and he will torment you, and he will tell you you're going to fight this for the rest of your life. That devil is a liar. God will give you revelation whereby you can defeat your adversary. Get people around you who know how to pray. And the deliverance that God provides will be yours. The Lion of Judah breaks every chain. His paw is on the serpent's head. So victory is yours. In the struggle you suffered alone, in the struggle you were isolated, you thought, I can handle this myself. When Listen, when you began to share it with somebody who prays alongside of you, 
The devil's got nowhere to hide because two of you are in agreement. Expose the lies of the devil. Shine the light of God's word on him. Say, this is what God says. Like an exposed roach, he will scatter. So tell your neighbor, the battle won't last forever. Then point number three. Never forget this one. You cannot outthink Satan. No matter how smart you think you are, how intelligent you think you are, you cannot outthink him. He existed before the world was made. He stood in the fires of God and knows wisdom and knowledge of God like no human knows. You cannot outthink him. The battle that rages in you is in your mind. Pastor Michael was telling me a little bit about watching this program with Joyce Meyer, and she was expounding on the battle in your mind. And she's done a lot of teaching and preaching on that topic. Very well done. Because this is where the battle is. It's right here. It all happens here in your mind. That's the battleground. And how Satan will just come and whisper to you and speak into your mind and plant seed in your mind. The battle's in your mind. When you're by yourself and there's no one else around, listen, and if you can think and he plants a seed in there, listen to me, he thinks as fast as you can think, if not faster. And you've been tempted by him before. He drops a seed of temptation into your thinking, right? You've been tempted before? Thank you for the two honest people right here. The rest of you get the religious spirit off of your life because everybody gets tempted. Everybody. And you cannot outthink the devil. But here's what you can do. You can outtalk him. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, it was the two of them facing off in the wilderness. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. And the devil showed up. And the enemy planted seed and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Because after 40 days, you're hungry. Jesus did not rebuke him in his mind. He declared God's word to the devil and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus spoke aloud. When Jesus opened his mouth and spoke God's word three times, the devil left him. You cannot outthink the devil. You will never outthink a spirit. They will plant thoughts in your mind every day. But you can out-talk your enemy if you have the reservoir of God's word inside of you. And when I've rebuked him, I've never heard the devil talk back to me saying, what did you just say to me? I've never heard him do that to me. I have heard him say, please don't say that to me. Please don't remind me of what God says as I watched him flee the moment. Satan cannot argue against the word of the living God. Thank you, Lord.
Therefore, James writes, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, how do you resist? You use your mouth. Because God has given you his word and established victory from, for his people from the beginning. The enemy only has authority in your life that you give him and grant to him and agree with him about. It's time that you know enough of this to agree with what God says, and trust me, the enemy will leave. So, anybody here ready to open your mouth and give God some thanks with some Holy Spirit-anointed thanksgiving? Then why don't you stand to your feet for a moment and take a moment and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's why when the enemy says, you're going to die, you'll never recover. He plants that seed in your mind. You remind him, yeah, I don't feel well. Yeah, the doctor's giving me a bad report. But God said, I am the God who heals you. God said, by the stripes of my son, you are healed. God said, with man it is impossible. But with me, all things are possible. Thank you, Jesus. And that's God's word. I promise you, it won't take him long. He doesn't have much patience. He'll be scatting out of your premises pretty fast when he knows you know what God has declared. And the only way you're going to get to know that is to pick up that book and start making it a part of your life. Eyes are closed for just a moment.